Welcome to Uncommons. I'm Nate Erskine-Smith, and on this episode, I'm joined by the powerful advocate Cindy Blackstock to discuss indigenous child welfare. Much of our conversation, of course, focuses on the Human Rights Tribunal decision and judicial review case with respect to both equality of treatment for First Nations kids, as well as compensation to kids for inequality of treatment and discrimination. We also discuss the progress in advancing human rights and reconciliation and how she views that progress. Cindy is the executive director of the First Nations Child and Family Caring Society of Canada, the co-applicant against the government in the compensation case I just mentioned, alongside the Assembly of First Nations, and she is also a professor in the School of Social Work at McGill. Not so long ago, Minister Miller joined the podcast, and we also discussed the Human Rights Tribunal case, so this discussion sits alongside that conversation in some respects. Lastly, before you hear the conversation, it's helpful to understand Jordan's principle. At the age of five, Jordan River Anderson, a First Nations child in Manitoba, died in hospital while the provincial and federal governments could not agree on who was financially responsible for his home care in a medical foster home. Jordan's principle is really a child-first principle to ensure that services for First Nations children are not delayed due to jurisdictional disputes. TRC Call to Action number 3 calls on all levels of government to fully implement Jordan's principle, and, as part of its 2016 decision, the Human Rights Tribunal ordered Canada to cease applying its narrow definition of Jordan's principle and to take measures to immediately implement the full meaning and scope of Jordan's principle. In subsequent decisions, the tribunal then established specific criteria that broadened the definition, and the government's current judicial review of the tribunal's decision centers on both the definition of Jordan's principle and also compensation for those who have been discriminated against. Cindy, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. It is wild to me that when I went and looked at the Caring Society's website and looked at the timeline, I knew it had been a long time and that this should have been resolved years ago. But I I don't think I fully appreciated that the first filing was February 23rd, 2007, when the Caring Society, alongside the Assembly of First Nations, alleged that Canada has racially discriminated against First Nations children by providing less child welfare funding and thus benefit on reserves. And that was an application through the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal. There have been many decisions and compliance orders, and there's also now a compensation decision that is subject to a judicial review in which the HRT awarded $40,000 to everyone affected by that unequal treatment. So you won the case, there was unequal treatment, and there was discrimination. It's been a long time. So I know it's impossible to explain in a short time, but are there highlights most Canadians should know about the case's history and where it is today? Sure. Well, the first thing to know is that even when it was filed, it was filed as a last resort. We had actually worked with the government of Canada to document the inequalities in First Nations child welfare that was resulting in more children going into child welfare care than at the height of residential schools, even at that time, between, say, 1999 through to 2006. We also documented shortfalls in other services for First Nations kids. And the reason these shortfalls exist, by the way, and many Canadians aren't aware, is the federal government funds public services for First Nations kids on reserve and in the Yukon, and the province is funded for everyone else. And since Confederation, the levels of federal funding have lagged far behind the provinces, almost across the board. That's why we have communities without water, for example. So that's just a symptom of this broader problem. We had developed evidence-based solutions to solve it. The government agreed with those solutions, but they didn't implement them. 
And during the time when we were sitting there talking to the government, trying to get them to remedy this inequality, the number of First Nations kids going into care racked up 71.5%. We had to do something because talking to the government, presenting solutions that were co-developed wasn't working. That's what sparked the filing of the complaint. That complaint, by the way, now would be 14 and a half years old. And so if I, when I talk to people, if this was a child, they'd be driving in another year and a half. And it's still going on. Our objective was to get culturally based and equitable services for First Nations children and their families so they can recover from the trauma of residential schools and live healthy and proud. We had research-based solutions to be able to recommend. And during the course of the litigation, what was so interesting is the government did not fight it in terms of what we were proposing was wrong. They fought it on legal technicalities that basically amounted to no one gets to tell the government what to do. That's basically what they were fighting. And that's what they continue to fight on is uh, they'll say it's exceeding jurisdiction, but that really translates into don't tell us what to do. We're the government. We get to call the shots. The problem with that kind of attitude is the government calling the shots is a repeat offender with First Nations kids through residential schools, the 60s group. And now, as you've pointed out, the tribunal has found that the federal government is racially discriminating against these kids. And it is also resisting the implementation of legal orders to remedy that discrimination. The good news is, again, we have worked over this last five years since the 2016 decision to come up with a research-based funding alternative that would allow First Nations children to thrive. And that was done in partnership with the Institute of Fiscal Studies and Development that Kevin Page operates with, I know you know. And that's been presented to the government, but still has not been taken on board. So with 19 non-compliance and procedural orders, and we're still racking them up. And this is the number one and number three TRC call to action. So I don't understand why we're still having to having to do this. When we talk about the government, from mm-hmm. your perspective, and I think from the perspective of many First Nations communities, they wouldn't delineate necessarily between conservative government or liberal government. They've received similar treatment, unequal treatment in the circumstances that we're discussing across governments of all political stripes. Right. That's right. But there are different people that inhabit different governments that can help to transform those governments and ensure that they act differently. And I want to get to how we resolve this case and how it can best be resolved by the government. Maybe it's as simple as dropping the judicial review in your view. But when it comes to the people that have inhabited these roles, when Jane Philpott was the Minister of Indigenous Services and Jody Wilson-Raybould was the Minister of Justice and ultimately responsible for the government's litigation strategy, these two women, what everyone thinks about them. I know that they care deeply about reconciliation. And through my engagement with certainly Minister Philpott and her team, they were very serious about certainly on the service side of the compliance orders of of meeting the compliance orders and improving services and, and finding a way to make sure the government was meeting its commitments to this idea of Jordan's principle. And did you see a positive change? from that 2016 decision and with a new government where new people were inhabiting those important roles? Well, I think it's important to say that there's been progress that has been person dependent throughout the long history of this case. Yeah, when the conservatives were in power, when the liberals were in power, there's always people who can move the yardstick a little bit forward. The problem is, is that's a rotating door. And we also get persons who are uh, not able or are not willing (laughs) 
to do this stuff. And those two people were in power, in my view, too short of a time to really be able to kind of land this. And so we continue to kind of have to do this litigation. And I would like to see there being a little bit more deliberation in terms of having people who are highly skilled and committed to First Nations children and families holding these portfolios for a longer period of time. And that they are understanding that when we come forward with these critiques, this is not a personal critique. This isn't a critique of XYZ party. This is us presenting evidence that the government is going down the slippery slope of wrongdoing again. And we want to be there to help right that ship so that the TRC calls to action are activated. That's the kind of person we need. Sometimes I find people personalize it like, oh my God, you, you don't recognize all the good we're doing. And I say, well, you know, if your child was receiving 20% less or 30% less because of their race by the government in public services, would you spend your time appreciating the fact that they're giving you 70%, but you're still missing the 30%? We don't ask anybody else to be thankful for racial discrimination in public services. And we ought not all of us, none of us should be satisfied until it's totally eradicated for First Nations kids. Yeah, I don't think there's any consistency with saying, yes, we recognize the progress and then we demand full progress. Thank you very much. And when it comes to people who inhabit those roles and the people who currently inhabit those roles. So Mark Miller, I had him on the podcast. I specifically asked him questions about this case and he has struck me throughout his engagement on this, but as someone who is also genuinely compassionate and concerned, who wants to do right by First Nations kids. And in the judicial review submission on behalf of the government, the government states both systemic reform and individual compensation can and must occur. So here they are saying, we know compensation needs to happen. And then it becomes a debate about how that compensation is arrived at, it seems to me. And, and to your point, they take issue with the overreach of the Human Rights Tribunal and the way it has been explained to me is, well, the Human Rights Tribunal, with the limited jurisdiction that it does have, has allocated the same lump sum for everyone. And I wonder, I spoke to Michelle Basterash, not on this, but on in relation to his work around settling cases around sexual harassment and, and discrimination in the RCMP. And there was a base amount and then individual case assessments. His past work with the uh, Roman Catholic Church and the sexual abuse individual case assessments. And then even the residential school settlement has that idea of a base amount and then individual case assessments. Do you see that being an appropriate way to settle this case, sort of a class action kind of settlement, and then a process to have a base amount and a larger amount for those who have been especially discriminated against? Or do you simply say, drop the appeal and pay the amount and let's move on? There's a couple of important issues that you're raising. One is, does the wrongdoer get to craft the remedy? That's the first thing. And I would say no. I think especially in a situation where it's been a repeat wrongdoer to children. So I think there should be a lot of humility from the government of Canada before they claim that space. That's a very good point. The second piece is that we have to remember that a lot of these beneficiary or rights holders who are entitled to this compensation are still children. So when I hear these conversations about, oh, we'll put them through an individual assessment because then we'll find out how they're harmed, how are we going to do that for a five-year-old or a three-year-old? That, to me, is unacceptable. 
And there's the other piece that people don't understand is that these are human rights damages. It's always open to the government of Canada to pay the 40000 as the floor and then to pay additional amounts for children who have had, had other harms. My plea in this is do not put children through an individual assessment process. We already know from survivors from residential schools how painful that was. Some of them died of suicide as a result of going through that process. We certainly don't want to put children in their very delicate developmental stage through that. Pay the human rights damages. Then you can go up from there with the class action council that you have. Second of all, there's the whole question of ending the discrimination. And the government of Canada has been presented with this evidence-informed solution to address it. They should adopt it instead of trying to recraft something that doesn't have that same evidence base. I think Minister Miller would share your view. When I put the question around individual case assessments to him, he very much emphasized the same, we don't want to re-traumatize individuals. And so I think you probably occupy the same space in response to that consideration. And then where the parties continue to diverge is around how they see the human rights tribunals compensation award. I take the point that the government ought not to craft its own solution. But if the government then sees the human rights tribunal as having crafted an inadequate solution, one goes and seeks judicial review. And then do you think then it's up to the court? Or do you think the parties can come together and it need not be the government that is imposing a solution per se, but that the government is then open to conversation with you to say, let's find a way forward that isn't exactly what the human rights tribunal has committed to, but is a a large figure and and a large settlement all the same? I would say we've actually been litigating this case for 14 and a half years. The government made positions on compensation during the trial. Their position during the trial was these children were owed nothing. When the order went against them, they all of a sudden started talking about, well, then we get to claim the right about how to craft this remedy. This is a legal order made by Canadian courts under the authority of a law created by the Parliament of Canada. The question is, does the law apply to the government of Canada? We need to understand what is at issue here, too. The legal order for compensation reads that this is a willful and reckless discrimination by the Canadian government in a worst case scenario that Canada does not contest has resulted in unnecessary family separations, harms to children, and the deaths of at least three children just in a non-compliant stage. So my question has always been to the government of Canada, if you think $40,000 is too much for one of those harms, then what do you think it's worth? What I'm saying is pay the $40,000, then figure out the rest. But this is your third time at bat with generations of our kids. And every time we've come before in these class actions, there's been apology, there's been a commission, and there has been a repeat of the wrongdoing. Part of my role is to make sure this is your last time that this has to happen, because I don't want to see another generation of kids hurt. But that's going to take a shift in mindset in the government. And when I ask the government, are there kids who deserve more than 40000 they will say yes, but not everyone is deserving of 40000 necessarily. It is case specific. And right. So what they're, they're saying is that some kids are worth less than 40000 Well, they will I say, yeah. So I guess they say that the context where some children were removed for a short time and for justified reasons, potentially, then that amount should be lesser than 40000 And I guess the question then to you would be, you've 
spent a considerable amount of time at this and you've heard so many stories and have you seen individual cases that would be deserving of less than $40,000 based on the totality of, of, of the circumstance? First of all, I should, should say, and a lot of people may not remember this because I've I'm getting old. So I've done a lot of things in my life. And I spent over a decade as a child welfare worker. I have done those removals, unlike anybody, as far as I'm aware, on the department side, minister, political staff, or or even people who work there. I think 40000 is the minimum. And also, I would say this, that the tribunal did not award compensation to children who were necessarily taken out of their family homes. These were children for whom the removal was unnecessary. Had Canada not been discriminating and provided the family supports necessary, these children would likely to have remained in their homes. So I think there's some misunderstandings there. And certainly I have talked, I don't know, Nathaniel, I don't know how many thousands of youth in care and children in care, children who are still children. And when you and I think back to our childhoods, we may think of a very happy moment. The day they remember the most is the day they were taken away from their family. Oh uh, yeah, how could they? How could they not? I mean, how could they not? And yeah. so, and I also put this in context of what the government does for others. And this is not to take away from those pieces because I think that they should have been done. But if we take, for example, the shooting down of the airliner over Syria, the government, without even being asked to do it, said we will provide families with twenty five thousand dollars, and these kids. Third generations, actually more than that. So like lots and lots of generations of kids hurt by the Canadian state still have to litigate to just get $40,000 for being unnecessarily separated from their families by the Canadian government. I don't think that's right. And do you have a sense of the global amount? We're talking about individual case is at a minimum worth 40000 I go back to that initial filing and the ask there was $109 million in year one of the proposed multi-year funding formula. And then I go to the, the parliamentary budget office and they have crunched a few different numbers, but they say based on Jordan's principal eligibility between 2.2 and $4.2 billion to settle the compensation amount as awarded by the human rights tribunal. And then they would say $15 billion potentially at the parties agreed eligibility when you sit down with your colleagues and when you sit down at the table with the government trying to hammer out a resolution and a settlement, is there a global sum that you think would capture 40,000 for every individual? Is it $15 billion? I would say, first of all, that 109 million was just for child and family services. Here's the important piece. And I think I'd like all governments to remember, they behave themselves into this compensation order. When we presented those reports with the solutions in the 2000 and 2005, there was no compensation on the table because we were about to prevent the disaster that was about to unfold. Canada chose to fight and the cash register for them became higher and higher. And now we have got so many children harmed that the amount is into the billions of dollars. But I don't want people to forget each child who's been harmed only gets 40000 so that number's become big and difficult for the government because the government has behaved itself into that way and has harmed so many children. I don't know what the what the big number is. I just know that the the harms are done at the level of the child. I agree fully with the Human Rights Tribunal that it's worth $40,000. And here's another contextual piece. 
That compensation award wasn't the only one provided in the long history of this case. There was a period of time when I experienced retaliation by the government. They followed me around. They, they watched my social media. The privacy officer investigated, found Canada out of line in a, a contravention of the Privacy Act. And then the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal held a trial and found Canada to be retaliating against me. I was entitled to $20,000 in damages. I received $20,000 in compensation, which I donated all to children's causes, because for me, it was about standing up for the right to peacefully and respectfully lodge a human rights complaint for children. If what I went through as an adult was worth $20,000, and Canada paid that amount, they didn't appeal it, it's hard to argue that what these children went through isn't worth 40. Hard to argue. and. Also hard to imagine that any right-thinking person would do that to counsel who is fighting on behalf of First Nations kids, any counsel in, in opposition, but let alone one fighting for First Nations kids. And, I, and I'm, not a, I'm not a lawyer. I, I'm a social worker, right? I got a law degree just so I could understand what the heck was going on. But I, I'm actually not a lawyer. I just, I was a social worker and I've never even had a parking ticket. And they deployed 189 people to follow me around. Unreal. And this is what happened is that they started to look at it as a fight between me and them. And it was not about that. This for me has always been a fight against discrimination against children. And anybody who supports that is, is going to find themselves in headwinds of that. But this, I don't care what political party ends it. I hope that somebody will do it as soon as possible. And, and I like when you push back against the global sum conversation, you say this is really about individual compensation. And where the PBO, I think, has probably overstated the figure, why I mentioned unnecessarily removed is because the PBO itself says that $15 billion figure is for all children removed, not those unnecessarily removed. And so the class of individuals who would be eligible is somewhere between 33,000 who would be eligible under the Jordan's principle compensation. And that's the 2.2 to 4.2 billion figure that the PBO has crunched. And then up to at a, at a maximum 250,000 individuals, but it would be lesser than that based on, on what you're telling me. The PBO is including people who wouldn't be captured under the, this compensation rubric. Well, actually, when I read the PBO's report and we looked at the order, I think we can agree that it is probably a higher amount. But let me just tell you a couple stories about what happened to those people. Because I think sometimes we can talk about, well, removal without really thinking it through. As you know, Jordan's principle passed unanimously in the House of Commons in 2007. And it ought to have uh, had the bureaucrats and the government been following the will of Parliament. Then First Nations children would have been able to access public services when they need them. That's really what Jordan's principle is about, free of any discrimination. But what happened is they took Jordan's principle and they crafted a definition so narrow that no child ever qualified. And they had no way for the public to request help under Jordan's principle. But despite that, some families came to the attention of the government. And the government had a Excel spreadsheet. And on one side, you'd have the name of the child. And these children are anywhere between babies to young children to teenagers. And then you'd have the need. Some children needed an insulin pump. Some children needed support so that they actually could breathe too, so they wouldn't go into respiratory distress. 
other children needed learning supports because if you got in there early, you could get them back on the right track and feeling proud of who they are. But if you don't get the, the learning disability corrected, then they'll start to feel like they're not going to be successful in school and they feel badly about themselves. So all that list on the right hand side, there was a, a column that said resolved or not resolved. And Canada would classify cases resolved if the child died or if the child waited so long that they aged out of care. And some one of those children in 2012 was a four-year-old little girl who had some kind of horrible tragedy during surgery. And it was in palliative care in the Christmas season of that year. The request comes into the government of Canada for some equipment that would stop her from going into premature respiratory distress so she could hospice at home and spend those last few sacred days with her family. It passes through the hands of 15 different bureaucrats before someone writes on there, absolutely not. A doctor with a bigger heart than the government actually used his own funds to provide it so this little girl could go home. Wow. That's who we're talking about for the $40,000. And I talked to a mom the other day, and uh, some people say, well, what are they going to do with all this money? Well, there's one of the moms who, who lost her child. She wants to build a play park for the children in her community in memory of her child. People want to take these very tragic stories and make something positive, give back in a good way with it. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Although I would say it's beside the point because this is about justice and compensation is required regardless of what it's to be used for. Regardless of what you do. And why I keep going back to the global sum is because I, in my own mind, when I push the government, I I read the PBO's numbers and I say, you got to come to the table with a large figure and it's got to be somewhere in this universe, if this is what we're being told. And what I hear you say is, it is on the higher end and we are talking in billions of dollars. And so I emphasized when I had Minister Miller join the same podcast, I I said to Mark on behalf of my community, and certainly there was the vote in the House of Commons that emphasized the same thing, but to say, we want a resolution to this. We want a fast resolution to this. And in the end, we want to make sure that First Nations kids are adequately compensated. So that's your job, go off and do it. And whatever that amount is. And so we know it's in the billions and billions of dollars because of that $40,000 award and you wouldn't be able to say it's six it's seven it's eight but it is to say create a process forty thousand dollars per kid and create a process for people to be able to apply and be eligible and and compensate accordingly yeah and we've already done that um so that work has been done and we involve for example groups like the youth and care canada to be a part of that process so that's been that's waiting and the other thing that's important to say though is to stop the discrimination Because the tribunal says that number is going to continue to grow until the tribunal finds Canada's in compliance with its orders. Canada throughout this long history has always self-professed that it's complying, only to find that it's not complying under legal order. That compensation number grows every day. And so the government needs to cease its discriminatory conduct as well. Okay, so let's pick up off of that, because my engagement, certainly when Jane Philpott was the minister, there team would emphasize that we're working hard, we are in compliance, and then there'd be another compliance order, and we're working hard, we are in compliance, another compliance order. But there was a, they really wanted to comply, and yet there were compliance orders. At the same time as the Human Rights Tribunal has been finding that the government needs to do more, take a step back, and and on this file, the government has been doing a considerable amount from what I can tell. I may be naive in this, but I, I see good faith efforts to, in some cases, improve access to Jordan's principle in response to the Human Rights Tribunal. In other cases, I see 
significant funding for child welfare in budget 2018. There was a billion dollars. We have Bill C-92 that passed the last parliament. And just recently in the spring, we saw the Cowessess First Nation in Saskatchewan be the first First Nation to enter into an agreement with the federal government to devolve authority and take back control for child welfare and associated funding from the federal government for, for the Cowessess First Nation to make sure that that, that story is a success. And that all seems like important progress. And yet, for some reason, the federal government can't resolve discrimination in this setting. I guess the two questions I would have, one, am I naive? Do you see progress on this front? Is it significant progress when I rhyme off the various initiatives? That's one. And then two, what does the government need to do? What should I be pushing the government to do to resolve discrimination on this particular point? Yeah, those are both really good questions. Let me take the last one first. And that is for you to know and for the public to know that in every case before we brought a non-compliance motion, we told the government that we, in our view, they were out of compliance and provided them with evidence and form solutions to bring them into compliance. Canada's response was we are complying. We said that this is what we're seeing at the level of children. So if you're not prepared to implement the solution we have or propose an evidence informed one that meets the same standard, then we're going to court. At every one of these compliance orders, Canada fought against the kids. And then it is implementing only on the basis of the orders. What I say is listen to us when we're sitting there (laughs) telling you you're out of compliance and we're presenting solutions. Like I don't have any interest in fighting with the government. I've got a lot of other things I could be doing. I would rather the government actually remedy this at the first instance so kids don't get hurt. That's my bottom line. And if the government is unwilling or unable to take the steps needed, then an order will follow. That's that's clear. In terms of what to push the government to do, there is that Institute of Fiscal Studies and, and Democracy report, which has been First Nations led by the Assembly of First Nations has been costed out, who is involved in the First Nations and First Nations agencies. And the government ought to be adopting that, as well as any recommendations that will come from a third phase of research we're doing right now. But there's a, they could do a lot to just adopt it as it is. The second thing that they can do is drop that judicial review on compensation and step out of this place of thinking that they get to call the shots when they're the wrongdoer. And adopt a real humility. Like what I've said to repeated ministers is if I was found responsible of a department that has repeatedly hurt kids at this level, I would be setting up safeguards in my own system so that we don't repeat the behavior again. I would stay away from treating this like a public relations exercise where I go out and say, we've invested X, but we eliminate the piece around, well, we fought against it at the tribunal, we're ordered to do it. And so, yes, we had to cough up the cash. Just enter into that space of learning and reform within the department. Don't just say reform out here. You need to reform the department, the philosophy, the ways of thinking that do that. And I personally, I, in my, my area, I'm going to have a copy of the TRC's calls to action at my doorstep. And I'm going to ask every candidate, what did you personally do to implement these? And are you prepared to stop litigating against children and residential school survivors in court? And if the answer to those questions isn't convincing, they're not going to get my vote. I don't care what party they're with. It's interesting because in the last parliament, uh, Jane Philpott had created this these caucus working groups to help push her team and help push the department in different ways. And I did join the child welfare working group. This, this to me, 
clean water is the issue I hear the most about from my community. Mm. But when I look at the total numbers and on clean water, I should say we've seen almost 70% of long-term advisories lifted since 2015. And there's been money in almost every budget. And when I went to, there was a PBO report on this as well to say more money is going to be required. And I, when I went to then Minister Philpot, she said, She's had conversations with the prime minister and when more money is needed, more money will be there. This is a commitment that we're going to see through. And obviously we've missed the timeline partly because of COVID, but we might've missed it anyway, but still there's been substantive progress. And I'm, I'm reasonably confident. I'm very confident that the government wants to see that promise through and is, is very committed to seeing that promise through on child welfare. When I was looking at the numbers, they were staggering that you look at the number of less than 8% of Kids in Canada are Indigenous and over 50% are in foster care. Oftentimes you hear numbers are disproportionate in the prison system, and that's true. But the foster care system, when I first saw the numbers, it it was staggering. And I thought, "This this is the biggest issue that needs to be addressed by the federal government today. There are lots of issues to address, but this is, I think, the biggest one. This is also one that has generational consequences. And it's also the top one the survivors recommended for the TRC calls to action. This is the number one call to action. And I couldn't agree with you more. One of the things we saw in the tribunal is data collected by the Department of Indian Affairs about the number of nights First Nations children on reserve and then the Yukon had spent in foster care. And the reason that struck me is when I think about kids, when they're excited about something or they want something to be over, they always say, how many sleeps do I see my dad? Or how many sleeps do I see my Nana, right? When you added uh, all those nights, it was over 66 million nights or 187,000 years of childhood. And that grows by about 10,000 every single day. We wait or we pat ourselves on the back or we say we go do it in the next budget. And that's why this thing is so urgent. We can actually do this right. The good news here is we have evidence-based solutions. We have legal orders to guide us so that the things don't get into discriminatory territory. And we have a public who is demanding this, as well as the survivors. I think that you got everything all lined up for success. There just needs to be a, a reduction of the roadblock. There has to be a can-do attitude. The same kind of can-do attitude the government brought to serve, for example. Or to negotiating that trade agreement with that crazy Trump in the White House. I'm saying that, not you. But, uh, you know, like no one would think that's complicated, right? But, you know, that kind of stuff. We can actually do this. But how of of that concerted effort, and this gets back to a previous question, but is C-92 a significant part of the answer? That idea of devolving authority and then funding First Nations directly to ensure that the child welfare services and child protection services are appropriate and and are under the appropriate control? And is the $1 billion from budget 2018 and and previous dollars to implement Jordan's principle, is that taking us a good amount of the way there? It's just to your point, it lacks a scale and an ambition that we brought to bear, we have brought to bear in, in other instances. Yeah, so the good news on Jordan's principle is about close to a million services and products have been given to kids as a result of these orders that they otherwise would have been denied. The important thing to keep in mind, though, is 65% of those are services for which other kids get and don't have to apply to Jordan's principle to receive. So there's still a quality on, on application. So we need to cost out all the inequalities in federal public services and then create a Marshall Plan and then address them. And that's what the Spirit Bear Plan is all about. So this would be a real, uh, this would really help all of us 
get out of this area of inequality and put in a, a good foothold for kids. You just reminded me when you mentioned the Spirit Bear plan, I had gone to the parliamentary budget office because this was one of the asks. And yeah. to your point about, sorry, if I was knocking on your door, I would say, I did go to the parliamentary budget office and I said, can you cost out the Spirit Bear plan? And and they have, they haven't done it in a, in a way that is so clear that would say, here's the costing of the spirit plan. But, you know, we went back and forth and they said, is this timeline acceptable? And we're working on this on housing and then we're working on this on healthcare, but they are pulling the strands together and they are doing the work. Yeah, I think that it's really important that they are. Um, what I'd like to see, though, is something a little bit with a bit more meat on it. So that, for example, we map out where are these federal programs what is the current state of knowledge? Because the PDO, as you point out, has done some of this work, right? So let's see how recent those reviews. Some of them might just need an update. Some of them might be fine as they are, uh, but there might be holes. For example, one of the, the gaps that comes to mind, and maybe you know better than I do, is around juvenile justice for First Nations. I've not seen the PBO do any costing out there. We have a pretty good idea about child welfare. There's a better idea about early childhood programs. But if we're able to just kind of put out a map, it doesn't. I don't think it needs to be that difficult. Where is the current state of knowledge? And then let's work together to fill those gaps so that we can put this all behind us as a country. I, I think it'll be good for, it'll definitely be good for First Nations kids, but it'll be good for the country too. I think there is a commitment to close gaps in the sense of when I see big picture child care commitment from Minister Freeland, while well, there's a, a big commitment to Indigenous early learning and child care as well. And there is a commitment to close gaps as it relates to education funding on and off reserve. And there has been funding to ensure those gaps close. But I, I do worry when if the billion dollars isn't enough, then we, we have to redouble those efforts because closing gaps in relation to child welfare and, and closing gaps in relation to ensuring that we are adequately supporting youth. And if you look at the the justice system, for example, or, or our support for social services on and off reserve, like we, there, there has to be equality throughout the life cycle. So there are some really big picture commitments that I think are going to get us to a place where we are closing gaps, but maybe not quickly enough and, and maybe not all gaps just yet. Well, I think that, you know, one of the things I worry about is this toxic culture of incremental equality for First Nations. What that is, is implicitly is an acceptance of racial discrimination for First Nations children in the provision of public services. So we have to just count, we have to say to ourselves, this was the exact same strategy launched 153 years ago. Well, just be patient. We're doing the best we can. Good first steps. No. Like these are children right now. And we all know, and here's the good news across the uh, political spectrum, the very best investment any government can make is in children because the payback for the government is huge. For every dollar you put into a child, especially in the early years, you save $18 downstream. The reverse is also true. Cheap out on kids and save yourself that dollar. You're going to be paying $18 downstream. Now, it seems to me that if history repeats itself, we have the cycle of liberal and conservative governments. You're going to be paying the price for whatever government that decided to cheap out. So it, it just doesn't make any sense. You've got to follow the research. Equity is one of the best mechanisms for governance. We know by reducing inequalities in our own country, we're going to improve the economy. We're going to improve the trust of community members. We're going to increase education, reduce things like coronary heart disease, improve outcomes in a pandemic. All of this stuff is linked to reducing inequalities. So it should be across the political spectrum. 
it's not enough to say, I think you have said actually that C92 is historic and transformative. I, I forget exactly the language you use, but keep going because that's not enough. There's so much more to be done and, and you've got to do it all. Yeah. And when I say all, it's that subst- substantively equal equality, which is every other Canadian already enjoys, right? Mm-hmm. Especially uh, Francophone Canadians, for example, with French schools that we have in British Columbia. That's a good, a good thing. But we need to take that same attitude for First Nations, Métis, and Inuit peoples. I'd also say that with C92, um, it affirms self-determination. But equity is an important part of self-determination because having the legal authority to do something, as you well know as, as, with your legal background, is one thing. Having the resources to be able to implement that legal authority is equally, or if not, and sometimes even more important. And that that basket has to go together. How does one take the the appropriate lens as it relates to urban and reserve indigenous populations? Because I worry about incrementalism on poverty reduction, as an example. And in the United States, many years ago, Martin Luther King calls for a war on poverty. And he says it will help poor white people. Yes, but it will predominantly help poor black people and Black people are disproportionately poor because of the history of our country. And when we look at poverty rates here in Canada, we see disproportionately Indigenous people are living in poverty in our cities. And, you know, I can point to the progress for the Canada Child Benefit and the Canada Workers Benefit and GIS for Seniors and a million people lifted out of poverty pre-pandemic. And that's all really, I think, really positive news. But there are millions of people that continue to live in poverty and we haven't addressed that disproportionality as it relates to Indigenous people. And when you are focused on the child welfare conversation, it is an on-reserve, off-reserve conversation. It is a, the provincial governments are funding services for people off-reserve to a particular degree, and the feds are underfunding for First Nations people and First Nations kids on reserve, and we need to demand equality. Right. But when you see the consequences of this intergenerational trauma and the historical injustice of this country... And we see the lived reality of that historical injustice today, people off reserve in many cases. Do you have a sense of how we go about addressing that? My, my thought, first and foremost, is poverty reduction, but but maybe I should be identifying other priorities, housing, obviously, too. And are, are there other priorities you think I ought to have or, or a frame of mind I ought to I have to have. I, I've been emphasizing the need to deliver for urban Indigenous people too. Yeah. We're slowly but surely realizing that at the federal government, I think. Yeah, and uh, I think you are on the right track with poverty reduction. We know that the leading factors driving children into care are poverty, poor housing, and substance misuse related to multi-generational trauma and domestic violence. Those are the key drivers. So whatever we can do to mitigate those things, we're actually doing child welfare, even though we may not frame it as child welfare, we're actually doing child welfare. So all of that is important. But I remember Justice Frankfurter, U.S. Supreme Court, 1955, and he said there's no greater inequality than the equal treatment of unequals. And uh, that's where the concept of substantive equality really needs to come into this. And we really need to invest in culturally based services. This is one area where Jordan's principle is helping. There is a legal order that uh, First Nations uh, children off reserve ought to benefit from Jordan's principle. And they have been in very important ways. That, unfortunately, is an order that the government is judicially reviewing. 
So we'll have to see what the federal court says on that. But I think that it's really important. And I actually think it's good for the government to provide Jordan's principle to First Nations kids off reserve because it really helps with that substantive equality stuff. I don't know. You know, I know that investing in someone my age is not a good investment for the government. I don't have a very good return on investment. But I think, you know, no matter where you go in the country, people are, are on board with the idea that kids are worth the money. And I think that's why we all work so darn hard and do all these crazy things is so kids can have a better than we do. And that's really what this is about, right, is let's give these kids a shot. Let's send them a signal that they won't have to fight for for basic things that other kids like let's let them just have just have their childhoods back. And those who lost their childhoods because of federal and church policies, there has been a national reckoning of sorts around the thousands of unmarked graves at former residential schools across the country. I said in the house during a take note debate after the initial discovery in Kamloops late one night, no, nobody pays attention to these debates, but they're important to have. And I I, was watching. Well, I'm glad you were watching. I I was watching. I got my eight minutes and I, I got a few questions from, including one from Leah Gazan, who, when we were talking about working across party lines, she's amazing too. I've had her on the podcast, yeah. but I get frustrated. So you commented earlier that it's not enough to pat yourself on the back for a certain amount of progress that you need to see that progress through to fruition. I think that's true. I also get frustrated by this, this push to say it's all words, no action. And there's been no progress because I look at it and I, And I guess my response to in that take note debate and my response to the national reckoning is to push back a little bit against this idea that it's all words, no action to say we've seen an increase of over 50 percent in federal funding for indigenous communities since 2015. We've seen billions through that funding for health, for child welfare, for clean water, for housing and more. I mentioned almost 70% of long-term advisories have been lifted, while also 180 short-term advisories have been lifted and water projects underway in every community that needs them. Under legislation passed, C92, which we talked about, language protection legislation with associated funding over $300 million, I think, justice legislation, which is near and dear to my heart because it includes drug policy reform. That's tabled, but not yet passed. My criticism is a different one, which is when you find thousands of unmarked graves of Indigenous kids in your country... It's not to say there's been no progress, but there's been insufficient progress and we need to do more. We need to be much more ambitious in delivering on reconciliation. And if there's any moment in time where Canadians are waking up, then politicians need to step up and demand that kind of ambitious action. Maybe that's a naive response, too. I I wonder how you would see that response if if I'm knocking on your door or if how you would see that response uh, when you watch that take note debate and how you think someone in my shoes should be responding and should be pushing the government. It, you know, I, I I worry if we find no progress, if we enter in the, into this coming election, say, or, or a future election, and people don't see any progress, we might lose the progress. And so I'm very cognizant of finding this balance to say, let's recognize the progress, but then let's demand much more ambition. And But I don't know if that's the right place to be. I think that that narrative has some legitimacy to it. If we aren't talking about basic human rights, sure. how comforting is it for uh, me if I'm a, for, I'm a First Nations person in a community with a boil water advisory for 25 years and I know I, in the middle of a pandemic and I know I'm not going to get water for someone to say. Yeah, not at all. Not at all. Not at all. So here's the piece. You should be mad as hell. Yeah. I think that where, where governments don't have the credibility 
is they often treat it like a public relations thing. And I, I wish that they wouldn't treat reconciliation that way. I wish that there would be like, it is unacceptable for any child or any person in this country to get less because of their race. Here's where we are now. And this is where we're going. And this is how long it's going to take for us to get there. And we are not going to be comforted. And we don't want you, the public, to let us off the hook for not making progress. Because what I saw during COVID-19, my mother is very smart. I love my mom. You know, I know you've got an amazing mom. So do I. And you know what she said? She said, Cindy, they are spraying money everywhere. I didn't even know they had this amount of money. <laughs> she said, that means it was always possible for them to treat our kids properly. And they chose not to do it. They chose that those kids weren't worth the money. And every time you give the speech about we're making progress, the kids are still not worth the money. And I think that we shouldn't, any of us be sad. I'm not, I don't pat myself on the back. I don't say, well, Cindy, you've made a lot of progress. <laughs> I, I talk about what remains to be done to meet the basic human rights and dignity of these kids. And I will not feel like I have succeeded or that the government has succeeded until we've reached that goal. And I think that's the danger of you of applying what would might seem quite reasonable if you're talking about something that's above the human rights spectrum. But we ought not to confuse those two things. And also, I, you know, I remember uh, Natan Obed saying this on a panel, and I thought it was very, very wise, as Natan often is. And he said, why is it that getting water or getting equitable health care is called reconciliation for First Nations, Métis, and Inuit peoples, and then just a basic human right for everybody else? It's a, it's a good point. It's a good question, right? And, and, and so, you raise the same considerations that Marie Sinclair, I paraphrased him in my speech because he had said to me something similar along the lines that we've seen this scale of response from the federal government in this pandemic. And if yeah. it was acute to indigenous people, would we have seen the scale and response? Probably not. And well, that- we haven't historically, and, but here's the opportunity. And this is what, I, this is where I want to leave a hopeful message is that the solutions to these problems exist. They are tailored to the federal government and to provincial and territorial governments to implement. If I look at the child welfare reports in every province and territory, there's so many solutions. Where things fall down is these governments don't implement them. Or they cherry pick the symbolic ones and they'll do that, but they won't do the hard work of the serious ones. And in doing this, these problems roll over and roll over and roll over and children and families get harmed unnecessarily. So we have the solutions. We clearly got the money, so let's just do it. And I guess it, it's context dependent, depending upon the issue in some ways, the extent to which money immediately makes that difference. Because if we're talking about ending poverty, then putting money in people's pockets on an annual basis would make a huge difference right away. And certainly when you mentioned serve, it made a difference to, to so many. When we talk about clean water, on the other hand, if it was a matter of writing a check and writing a larger check and fixing the issue tomorrow, then it would have been done already. The way it's been described to me, at least, is there is work underway and there are many communities that have had short-term fixes to deliver clean water to them, but the longer-term fix is just structurally going to take a considerable amount of time. And so we're not going to lift the long-term advisory until that long-term fix is in place. And that is what it is. And so money isn't going to solve that problem tomorrow from a human rights perspective of sort of lifting that long-term advisory. It will go a long way to making sure that work 
commences and making sure that it'll be seen through. In there, articulating progress, I think, can be valuable. As it relates to child welfare, especially when we talk about compensation to get, I, I guess, close where we started, that is really just about money. And that is about money, but it's also it's more importantly about Canada stopping the behavior, discriminatory behavior. Like just if you don't want to pay in the future, I'm all on board with that. Just <laughs> stop discriminating against the kids. You want to put yourself out of work. And, and, I, and I, I, I'd be I'd be happy like I'm 57 years old. And the crazy thing about this is when I started, I thought it would be easy enough to do. I actually when I came to Ottawa in 2002, I was convinced that all we had to do is show the federal government the short funding, work with economists and others, First Nations experts and others to create evidence-informed solutions so they could fix the problem, and they would do it. And that has been the reckoning, is that that doesn't work. That, to me, is sad, because that's what public policy should be based on. But we have that opportunity today. That opportunity hasn't fallen from us. Yes, there's a big ticket to be paid for all the kids that were harmed. But our shared responsibility, the most important one we have, is to make sure there isn't a fourth wave to use a COVID thing. And all the mechanisms to prevent that are in the hands of the government right now. So all they need to do is, is choose to do it. And if there is a fourth wave, there won't be any cover that people of the period didn't know any better back then. There won't be any cover. And people will not be convinced by a government saying, oh, well, the tribunal exceeded its authority. That's why we're challenged. That, that's not going to fly. Not when you're talking about little kids and not when you're talking about an opportunity this important. And I, I'm just hoping that as, as politicians become more educated and as the public becomes more educated, that they can see that let's jump on this. Let's do this for the kids. Let's show them that we, that we love them enough to get it done. Well, I, I said at the outset before we started recording, my mom said I needed to have two people on this podcast if I was going to take it seriously. And this is the 90th episode, actually. It's kind of crazy oh. to think. Yeah. And the two people were Jane Goodall and you. And Jane Goodall joined me a number of months ago. And I'm I'm very appreciative of how gracious you've been and how generous you've been with your time. I think it's incredible that you have continued this work for the 14 and a half years. I know you're going to see it through. And my hope is that the government does listen and that there is a substantive dollar figure that is provided through you to First Nations kids and and that we, there is that permanent fix so that no compensation is required on a going forward basis. So all this to say, thank you. And don't hesitate to reach out. So post-election, if I'm still kicking around, I hope I'm still kicking around. But if I am, reach out to me anytime. Your staff have been, I, I don't know if you know, but I've reached out to your staff a few different times around compliance orders to get clarification. And your staff have also been very gracious with their time. And it certainly helped me in pushing the government at different times. And so don't hesitate to reach out if I can be of assistance in pushing the government on anything. Thank you. I appreciate that. And huge thanks to you and to your wonderful mom. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Uncommons. I will close with two thoughts. First, I think Cindy Blackstock's point is well taken, that no one deserves great thanks or congratulations for moving us closer to equality after a history of discrimination and prejudice. There is a minimum expectation, and criticism remains warranted if we fail to meet the basic minimum in a timely way. I think Minister Miller actually shares the same view. When I spoke with him about progress on clean water, he made the same point Cindy did. Communities remain without clean water, and there is no time to pat ourselves on the back. At the same time, many long-standing problems cannot be fixed immediately, 
simply with money. So while it is true that some progress shouldn't be celebrated, it is also true that significant, albeit incomplete progress, should not be cast aside as zero progress. And and I do worry in the political system in which we live that if those who care about equality and reconciliation don't believe real progress has been made, then we may well lose the political will and progress as governments change hands. When I listen to our conversation again, the approach that Blackstock laid out is one that I think establishes credibility and trust. The need to identify clear timelines, to show our progress in a transparent manner, to ensure money is no object in making that progress, and to take every action possible to move forward without delay until such time as we see substantive equality. Now, I mentioned I had two points to make, so here's the second one. Thanks for listening. Simple as that. Thanks for your support if you're a supporter, and thanks for engaging even if you're not. Whatever happens in this coming election, I am thankful to have had the opportunity to represent my home riding of Beaches East York, to meet incredible people like Cindy Blackstock as one example, and I've certainly found these podcast conversations helpful to educate myself, to inform my advocacy, and to challenge my thinking. I hope it's helped do the same for you in many ways. As always, leave a positive review on your platform of choice if you like what we're doing. I will hopefully see you on the other side of the election, and I normally close by saying otherwise until next time, so let me say I certainly hope there's a next time. Bye.